Mr. Brandon Monroe, how are you, sir? Pretty well, Matt. There's been a lot happening this week. Really? I, I, didn't, I didn't spot anything. Are you sure? Well, let's uh, call you your so well. How are you? Thank you, brother. Um, all, all good here. It's been raining for three weeks, waiting for summer to turn up. In the meantime, I entertain myself by reading the Uranium News. Geopolitics continues to surprise and delight. So shall we talk about North Africa? Mm. Mm, yeah, exactly. tra really tragic situation unfolding there for the Nigerians. Now, interestingly, there seems to be, and of course, for people who haven't followed it, we're talking about the military coup that's taken place in the West African ECOWAS nation of Niger, not to be confused with Nigeria, uh, different countries bordering, but nonetheless different. And there's been a coup there just in the last week. And it seems to have a lot of public support, interestingly. It's, it's not too good if you're a government minister because you've been rounded up and arrested and the uh, democratically elected president is under effective house arrest in the presidential palace and it has many of those typical ingredients of a coup. However, it's certainly showing the signs of being more than temporary and it's got a number of signs that could indicate an escalation. And all of those point to really desperate situations for the Nigerian people who are already one of the poorest nations in the world. So uh, there's a lot to be unhappy about in West Africa at the moment because of that situation. Well, absolutely. absolutely. And I think, look, I, I want to point this out. And I, I think I mentioned another conversation I had earlier the, uh, in, the, in the week. Perhaps I got my number slightly wrong there. Um, is the fact there have been over 200 recorded in Africa since the 1950s. That's a lot. Um, and normally it kind of signals a sort of transition of governments. Not to say there's not, it's not necessarily um, anti-democratic because it usually, you know, it's a transfer from, you know, one kind of failed state to another failed state um, in, in, in many cases. But this one has a kind of slightly sinister undertone, I would argue. The Wagner Group have been operating in the region for a few years now. You know, un unopposed um, and forming allies. And I think there's definitely the fingerprint of, of the Wagner Group on this. And, you know, and that in the context and backdrop of the Russia Africa conference this week in St. last week in St. Petersburg. Um, do you think that sort of changes the, the, this, this narrative at the moment? The, will this fall into the category of, it's like all our other African um, cues, and we'll kind of, I guess, you know, go back to some sense of normality, albeit with a slightly different head of state, or is there more to it? Look, I think it's a really good point that you raise. Now, obviously, there's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot that we're guessing about, and there's a lot that we're supposing. But based on what appears to be the reality on the ground and our own interpretations of the geopolitics surrounding this event, I would say that it is different to many of these African situations. As I say, many of the coups in Africa are, they, they kind of fit into an almost benevolent category because it might be a dictator who has an election, refuses to hand over power, military comes in, and they basically opt a, operate a, a true transitional government allowing for either the new leader to come in or some sort of a new process. And then you get another set of coups that are dressed up that way. 
and have this very transient nature about them. This just seems to have some more permanent ingredients, as we've seen in Neighbours, Mali, and Burkina Faso. And there's a lot at stake here, and there's a lot of reasons to believe that there's a greater involvement from the Wagner Group and potentially the Russian state as well. And that's what makes it um, a lot more sinister, as you say, Matt. It doesn't, whilst the pretext might be uh, they're unhappy with the security situation and they're unhappy with the economic situation, it looks more like a grab for power uh, to reframe the regional power stakes in the area, in that uh, ECOWAS Sahel region of Africa. Yes, it's, it's kind of interesting because it's, it, it was it was already, I think, perhaps um, struggling with a again an a, a sort of overlay of this kind of Islamic militancy in in West Africa. We we saw Mali and I guess Burkina Faso as well. You know, ha- having having to deal with that. And you have obviously with in Niger's case, a lot of yeah, it's a big big contributor towards the French um, uranium and nuclear. Um, energy program. Um, they have you know, had a big presence in there, and it, and it feels like the the kind of sentiment from this um, this new mil- you know military uh, leadership is we are anti France. We're declaring French language, uh, or we're removing the French language. From, you know, um, we are going to ban potentially ban all movement of uranium, um, which benefits France. So it, it, there's that going on. You kind of got the Islamic component in terms of that Western Sahel um, and the security issues around that. It, it's get, it's getting complicated. I, I don't think anyone's got the answers, and we'll have to see how this thing um, plays out. But these these are big questions that need to be answered and you know, possibly addressed. And I'm intrigued to see how France reacts. I'm trying and try and um, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how does other Western nations back France up? Do they back France up? And of course, there's a big sort of you know U.S. military um, base in the middle of uh, Niger too. So you know, ha- how does that play um, against what's going on as well? So it's, it's interesting times there for sure. Well, that's right. And France is facing a very difficult decision here. Um, do they stay and enforce and support militarily the democratically elected president who's under under arrest at the moment? And um, that's a commitment that's not a simple uh, several-week exercise. Uh, the situation is that Burkina Faso and Mali's uh, ruling military governments have both said that they will support Niger if there's any foreign intervention either by the ECOWAS alliance, which is primarily Nigeria to the country south, or from other actors, which is clearly a reference to France. So that's a protracted campaign that they would need to be prepared to engage in. That, of course, distracts from their capacity to support the Western efforts in Ukraine, and perhaps that's part of Russian calculus. What it's also likely to do is unleash a new wave of immigration into Europe that'll have a destabilizing effect on Europe, which is probably also part of the Russian calculus. And the US, they'd be reluctant to get involved. They've got a doctrine of not being involved in more than two conflicts of war on at any one point in time. And if they were to get drawn into the Sahel region um, in any official capacity, then that reduces their capacity to react to a Taiwanese situation. 
So I would expect that they won't uh, want to get involved. And they've been very careful not to use words like coup. Uh, they're tiptoeing quite carefully now for various domestic regions, uh, reasons to do with provision of aid and so forth. Um, but, you know, like all of these situations, the real victims on the ground are the Nigerian people. The ECOWAS Alliance has already declared a range of <clears throat> biting sanctions. Um, there's nothing going in or out of Niger. Niger is a landlocked country. Uh, it's a desperately poor country. Medicine's not getting in. Food's not getting in. Other provisions are not getting in. They, they will run out of energy very soon. Uh, so it's a desperate situation. And on top of that, ECOWAS has declared that they will use force if necessary if the rapidly expiring seven-day ultimatum for a return of civilian power doesn't occur. And we're not seeing any indications that that will be observed. So it's, a, it's looking like a very serious standoff in that area where you've got potentially three countries, two of which have already got a substantial Wagner presence securing their own uh, internal security. And uh, Nigeria backed by other ECOWAS alliance countries and potentially with a role from France. It's a highly volatile situation. And uh, I, I think the opportunity for it to resolve quickly has already passed. Now, of course, we're all hoping for a quick resolution and I'd love it, Matt, if we come back the next time on air and there has been a resolution. And unfortunately, I'm not very positive about that at all. Yeah, um, for, for, for sure. I mean, we, we, I say for the Nigerian people, we hope there's a quick resolution because they're the ones that are actually affected on the ground while this kind of you know, power grab um, plays out um, and the international community works out how it reacts, if it reacts and when it reacts. Um, a couple of things, I actually got called by um, a, a journalist um, yesterday to discuss this and, and I kind of quite bizarrely had to point something out to them, um, which was, he was talking about the effect of this coup on African um, uranium, or, or rather Africa as a uranium um, producer and provider globally. And as I think that's a reminder that Africa is a continent, not a country, um, which he uh, failed to recognize. Um, so this is, this is we're talking about Niger here, not Nigeria, but we're also not talking about, talking about Niger, not Africa. Um, <clears throat> I think you'd, you'd definitely be um, keen to point that out. Um, where, where are you? How far away are you from this this uh, situation? Remind us. Um, it's, uh, I think it's about four and a half thousand kilometers between Niger and Niger. Um, right. It's, it's a totally different part of Africa. It's totally distinct in terms of the geopolitical alliances and the uh, military and treaty alliances, the trading partners. Uh, Namibia is in an Anglophone part of Africa. Niger is in a francophone part of Africa. So it's it's thoroughly different. There is a land bridge connecting the two of about four and a half thousand kilometers. And apart from that, they could be separate continents. That's the reality of it. And now what's interesting though is that you always wonder, well, is there any knock-on effects? And I was asked that question on Twitter yesterday, and I went to the main masthead in Namibia, uh, which is aptly called the Namibian. And I had a look at their front page and I couldn't find anything on the coup. So there's less news in the Namibian sphere than there is on the BBC or Al Jazeera or even the ABC that we're looking at in Australia here. So it, it really is in a very different part of the world as far as Namibia is concerned. 
Yeah. And they're just very different countries. You know, Namibia's never had a coup. It, it's not even thinkable. Uh, the military is totally disconnected and distinct from the government. Um, there's a proper rule of law. It's It'd be as unimaginable as a coup in New Zealand, quite frankly. Now, that's very different for a, a dynamic country like Niger. It uh, gained independence in 1960. This will be the fifth successful coup that they've had, and they've had seven unsuccessful coups as well. So we're talking about a very different tolerance, a very different role that the military plays in society. Um, most of the time I go to Namibia, I don't even see a soldier. And I mean that, like you see police and you see other things that you see in a normal country. Um, but uh, if you see someone in fatigue, it's like, oh, there's a soldier. That's interesting. It's a very, very different place. So there's absolutely no contagion. And if anything, uh, the only link between Niger and Namibia is it probably positions Namibia's uranium industry better uh, because it's known by the players in this market as being a very reliable source of uranium that um, that doesn't carry any of that security or political risk. Right. Okay. Like, and like, and I don't necessarily want to spare so I, I you know pick one or the other here. I think you know, we want we want all of this to kind of resolve because we need all of this uranium. We really, really do. Um, and I think the French would agree. So hopefully it gets resolved. But it, it, I kind of go, it does put a kind of question mark on timing of the um, you know for. It was, for companies like obviously Global Atomic and and, and GoBX, obviously in country, it, it, it's um, less than ideal uh, for them, especially for Glo um, Global Atomic because they are in the process of looking at debt solution for um, their, their capex at the moment. This, well, is this I guess the second occasion where perhaps the, the timing hasn't worked from the first time was you know, eco warriors get getting in the way to slow things down. There came back on track, and I think now this. You know, as an ex-banker, um, I've, I've been in this situation where there's been a queue in Africa when we're kind of mid, mid transaction, and we've had to look down tools basically and see how it played out because there's no way a bank, certainly not a debt provider, is going to walk into a situation like this until this is resolved. So we want this resolved as quickly as possible, and as in global, we want this resolved as quickly as possible, positively um, as well, so that they can get, get on the business of. Raising the capital in the meantime, obviously shareholders nervous. I think the stock is down by fifty percent over the last week since about the twenty since the twenty fifth. Um, that is, I guess, unfortunate, but uh, you know, one one of the realities of uh, running a mining company. Um, so we wish them well. We want it to work out. Let's see what happens, and maybe next week we'll be having a, a different conversation. Who knows? Um, we better skip on because we want, we've got a lot to cover this week because we didn't, didn't catch, up, catch up last week. Um, so why don't we go to think more positive news and we'll go to winner of the week. Who are you allocating that to? Onto a positive tone. Hmm. So it's a tie this week <laughs> between China, who have just approved another six nuclear reactor construction starts, that's after they approved 10 during calendar 2022. So we would expect that the target is 10 per year. So we've probably got some more good news coming for the rest of this year as well. And the other one, which for a very different set of reasons, um, are the folks at Georgia Power who have finally connected the Vogel nuclear 
reactor three to the grid. So China, I think it's obvious, they're getting on with it. What's fascinating is they're shortening the construction time. They're now targeting uh, between four and five years to complete a nuclear reactor, a, you know, a large-scale, gigawatt-scale nuclear reactor. And they've been building them consistently at about five years, about 60 months on average. Uh, now, that's very distinct from the experience that we've had at Vogel. And what's really fascinating is their estimate on the cost of these six nuclear power reactors is about 2.79 billion US dollars per reactor. So let's take that into an economics frame. They're building at a uh, installed capital per kilowatt hour of capacity of under 3,000 US dollars. Now, Matt, if you go back to some of the earlier discussions we had a few years ago, you'd remember that we were talking about China wanting to get under $3,000 uh, per kilowatt hour installed capacity. And what that does is that gives them an absolute advantage in the export market uh, compared with what the South Koreans are managing to do, which is closer to five to $6,000 US per kilowatt hour. Um, the Russians are doing it at about, depending on where it is, about $5,000 a kilowatt hour. And then you've got Western examples, which, you know, Hinkley C6 to 7, depending on what pound US exchange rate you use. And then you've got the outliers, which is what the Antinuke crowd absolutely love, like Okiliotto in uh, 3 in Finland and, of course, Vogel here. So very clear as to why the Chinese are the winners. Why the Vogel... Uh, team of the winners is they stuck with it. They got backing that goes all the way back to Senator Perry when he was the Secretary of Energy under the Trump administration. They made the call not to abandon, but to take a view on the need to finish another AP1000 in the US and to build the first AP1000 or the first new reactor in the US in about 30 years. It's been very expensive. It's had extensive delays it's uh, the stuff that dreams are made of for the anti-nuclear crowd because they can now cherry-pick this, ignore all of the cheap and fast reactors built in China and say, ta-da, it's too expensive. However, what it's done is it's enabled the US to stay in the game. It's enabled the US to maintain its nuclear industry. One of the main reasons why this project was delayed is because Westinghouse went broke right in the middle of it. Now, of course, Westinghouse is owned half by Brookfield Renewables and half by Cameco, and it's going from strength to strength to strength. Now, unless you've got a domestic nuclear power industry, you can't be an export player. And unless you're an export player, the US cannot temper the influence that Russia and now China are having in the global energy infrastructure game. There's a big picture here. It's a geopolitical picture. And I think they're a very worthy winner, joint winner, by tie with China for the for this week because they stuck with it and they've finally got to the finishing line. It, it's a very, very interesting addition to the conversation um, around, you know, return on capital invested um, and, you know, base load energy um, and, and where, where this puts that whole conversation in relation to some of the um, news coming out with regards to you know you know wind, wind turbines uh, and solar panels and recycling issues and and the reality of the cost minus subsidies. So um, again, I, I suspect um, we talked about it before. We'll talk about it again 
Um, but very, very interesting news indeed. And my favorite, Bungle of the Week. Who's getting that? Well, in a very neat segue from your earlier comments, Matt, Bungle of the Week, I'm going to award it to all the hapless folk who said with a great degree of authority over the last several years that renewables will continue getting cheaper, just like computer chips. And it was a mantra. It was presented as scientific fact. And it was challenged at the time, and we we said, no, no, no. And, gee, I can't tell you how many times you and I have said it on this show in the, on the public record, but we said, you cannot apply Moore's Law to renewables because they require natural resources. And sooner or later, if you try and dig up too many natural resources compared to what supply there is, prices will go up. And we were held down, and, of course, uh, science and renewable dogma don't always go hand in hand like they should. And what's happened? Well, we've now got wind turbine prices up by about 40%, uh, which is, you know, bang on what we predicted. So the bundle of the week goes to not only the, uh, the lobbyists who managed to very skillfully weave in this narrative without any real challenge, but it also goes to all of those policymakers who fell hook, line, and sinker uh, for that in their decision making. Now, who's left carrying the can? Well, it's in many cases the contractors who have agreed and committed to build these projects. And so the very recent news is that uh, we're seeing Vattenfall and Orsted abandoning two different projects, offshore wind projects, because of a 40% cost escalation. Uh, there's a number of other examples where Siemens, for example, have just undertaken an extended technical review, as they call it, because of these significantly higher costs that are predicted to be about 40%. Now, in an infrastructure project, that is an acute increase. And, you know, quite rightfully, people might look at our comments and say, well, you know, aren't you throwing stones from your glass house in the in the resources sector because you know because we've talked a lot about cost inflation and there's many a project in the mineral sector at the moment that's gone up by 40%. But the difference is an infrastructure project is supposed to be locked down. You're supposed to have a very, very, very good line of sight to your cost and your revenue over a long period of time. And that's the whole basis, as you know well, Matt, for the finance that then goes into an infrastructure project. And if you're talking about intermittent renewables, it's also the basis for all of the subsidies that get poured into those projects. So this is disastrous. It's catastrophic. Um, and it, it's a shame because viewed accurately with the right amount of questioning and the right amount of debate, we need all of these renewable sources. We need offshore wind still. We need solar. We just need them in the right balance with the other forms of energy. And instead, what's happening is we've got market distortions that are resulting in wind projects being built where they really shouldn't be, and that's raising the prices for wind projects that probably should be built and should be feeding into the grid, and in many cases, that's offshore. So it's a collective bungle to a whole lot of people who've been involved in the artificial inflation of expectations from the very real and very positive contribution that intermittent renewables can play into a balanced grid 
through to this expectation that we can all live off 100% renewables, you know, with a sprinkling of unicorn dust and, you know, the energy you get from rainbows. Well, well, well sad. Look, it, it, it just stuns me that you, you, talk, you talk about, uh, you know, this, this um, sort of slightly deluded expectation of what problem it can solve, but it, it, the, the kind of counter to that is obviously it, it suggests a huge reduction in the logic applied to this. And, and that's when, you know, government needs to kind of step up and do its job properly. It's meant to be there to kind of, you know, set the, 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 the tone and maybe help with some incentives to deliver cheaper energy for its populace. That's the point, okay? It's for the benefit of the people. That's why you're elected. That's what your job here. But when they're kind of pushing companies into a slightly, again, like I say, slightly d- deluded energy supply and, and transition uh, phase, which is not well thought through. I've got a couple of friends who you know advise governments, including the French government, the UK government, on the energy trade, and they, they, they're pulling their hair out because it seems to be, all for profit, all for headlines, um, and not joined up thinking. You know, and I'm, I'm probably trying to get one of them on on the show to kind of explain um, what a good return on capital invested is for for investors, but what is a, a good return on government's money for its people in the context of energy? Nuclear, he says, has to be a significant part of that cornerstone of that long-term certainty so anyway one for another day you can, say, you can tell i get frustrated by this stuff um, when politicians get involved um because they they are unthinking in the worst possible way right um okay here's a question for you i like this one because uh, i think it, it is good so um, okay so cows adam problem sales have gone up 13 percent um why what does it mean um, for, for Kaz Prom and the wider market? Good question. So, Kaz Prom had their quarterly results this week and they, there's always a lot of really interesting stuff that I'd encourage everyone to read. But uh, what you're referring to, Matt, is they've increased their sales forecast for this year by 13%. And you might say, gee, well, they're doing a good job. But it's not that they're selling 13% more it's that their customers are saying we'll take 13% more under the existing uh, sales contracts and the sales gotcha. arrangements. It's known in the industry as flex. And what that really means is if you, most of the uranium still sold under long-term contracts in our sector. And those contracts, they're reasonably complicated commercial arrangements where a certain volume of, of uranium is committed by the supplier to the buyer, from the mining company to the utility buyer of that uranium. Now, the utility has the option to either take a little bit less or a little bit more, and that's flex. Typically, it's negotiated on a case-by-case basis, but typically in our sector, that flex is about 20% down and about 20% up. So here's what's happened across our sector over the last 10 years in the bear market that started after 2011. The contracts that were written before Fukushima ended up being substantially higher prices than what utilities could achieve in the spot market. 
So there was a time, TEPCO, for example, called force majeure on some Cameco contracts where the average price of those contracts was $112.50 a pound. And at that stage, uranium was trading at under $25 a pound. So that gives you an example, you know, quite a, um, quite a stark example of where these contracts were very high compared to what the utilities could buy. So, of course, they took as little as they could possibly get away with, and they used all of that flex to reduce the amount of their purchase obligations under these contracts. And so, of course, the miners, like Cameco, like Kazadam from, they did all of their planning and all of their sales funnel planning on the basis that, you know, the utilities, they'd probably take a bit less than the target amount, but, you know, we, we'll flex a little bit there. So all of a sudden, we've had this situation where what's come into the market, it's absorbed all of the excess inventory in this sector, the spot price has gone up, and some of those contractual terms look really good compared to what utilities could achieve in the spot market. And not only that, but the utilities don't want to buy in the spot market because they don't want to push the price up in competition with spot and other natural market buyers. So they want to get as much as they possibly can out of their contracts by utilizing the positive flex. Here's the rub. Remember I said that those miners, they got trained on expecting that the flex would be on the downside. So they lined up their contractual commitments with a negative view of how much of the, that volume would be called for under the contract. Now we've got an abrupt flip the other way. So in simple terms, you could say that all of a sudden they're oversold by about 20%. So when Kazadamprom says its sales are up by 13%, what it's really saying is it's oversold by 13%. At a time when they're experiencing difficulties getting their product out of Kazakhstan because of Russian sanctions and uh, um, difficulties operating shipping lines out of St. Petersburg, um, constraints on the Transcaspian route, and at a time when it's pretty well known in the sector that Kazadamprom is buying in the spot market anyway, they've admitted it themselves that they need to. Cameco is in a similar situation. So this is a really interesting dynamic in this sector. And it's an example of one of the several very important virtuous cycles that switched so sharply from a bear market to a bull market. The other one's secondary supply. When there's a whole lot of excess inventory, when everyone just assumes that they can get uranium really easily in the spot market, the utilities don't think they need very much inventory and they're more likely to sell because they're getting pressure from their finance department to use their balance sheet. You know, why are we carrying all this uranium? You're telling us that it's everywhere. Suddenly the excess inventory is gone. There's a heightened anxiety about whether the supply is even there. You get a coup in Niger, which is responsible, as we discussed, for 5% of the world's uranium. And not only do the utilities uh, stop selling their excess inventory, but they suddenly think, well, maybe two years isn't enough. Maybe we need two and a half years of inventory. We'd better start buying. And they buy competitively. So that's another example of these cycles that can reverse very abruptly in our sector. Again, the swing from a bear market to a bull market is very dynamic in the uranium sector. And that's one of the factors 
that makes it attractive to investors. And one of the reasons why fund managers, retail investors, and even generalist investors are starting to understand that this is a sector as it switches from a bear market to a bull market that you really need to keep your eyes on. It does have the potential for some very interesting financial gains as an investor. Well, yeah, and I, I think in, in a few minutes, we'd, <clears throat> I'd like to talk, talk about some knock, knock-on effects there. So um, I'm wondering what what influence Niger has on um, you know, uh, you know, Kazatom problem in, in in terms of you know how, how they how they view this, where they look. Because we, we talked a few weeks ago about obviously, you know, say China reaching out and trying to you know buy up um, to mark up all of you know all, all the deals that they can for for uranium globally. Kazatom from um, obviously closely linked with Russia, you know, Chinese um, conversations. It's you know I think people's expectation is that most of Kazatom Trom's product will head east. Um, Niger, which is what five percent of the market, um, potential huge disruptions there. I mean, what what does this do in the minds of a utility going? Crikey, I'm playing. I've been running this close to the wire for the last few years. We are running down our own inventories at our you know various um, sites um, our, our, within our fleet. Um, you're hearing news that like, like this like from Kazan and from. How, how does a buyer react to this? You know, what what, what do you think they're they're now thinking? Perhaps they're a little bit more, more nervous. So here's the really fascinating thing for investors right now: that the average fuel buyer right now, as I look at my watch, which it's it's in the morning your time, is they're wondering what to have for lunch because they're on holiday, they're on vacation. It's August in the northern hemisphere, so the industry isn't doing much at all. That'll change very abruptly in September, and that's why this sector has a very strong seasonality aspect from September through to the rest of the year, because fuel buyers and other market participants, traders, all the rest of them, they go on holiday or vacation in August, and then they come back in September, and they all regroup in London for World Nuclear Association Symposium. The difference is this year, they're going to be regrouping and thinking, wow, that, 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 and having already come from the space of understanding that the wheel has turned and we're now in a deficit environment, we're in a scarcity environment, we're in a need for more diversification, get away from Russia, they're then going to be confronted with working their way through. Potentially by September, we've got more clarity on what's happening in Niger. Uh, there'll still be question marks over how much supply can get out of Kazakhstan. They'll be getting their heads around delayed financings of emerging greenfields projects, such as we've talked about. And my anticipation is that that will be a very dynamic week in London as all of the market participants start to gain through this. Now, here's the, the fascinating thing for investors. To answer your question, you know, what are utility fuel buyers thinking? Apart from the fact that they're on vacation, they they don't tend to react to speculation. They're not investors. They want to see the evidence. They might be looking at Niger saying, that's really fascinating. That's a dangerous situation. But they won't react until they know. So the Nigerian government has said, as you mentioned before, that they will block uh, uranium exports to, uh, to France. Okay. The utility fuel buyer, they will say, well, let's wait until we know if the uranium's getting out of there or not. 
And in any case, if they block it for two weeks, if, even if they block it for a month, it doesn't really make much difference as long as it gets out eventually. Investors, of course, we, it, we're trained to react to speculation because that's how we make returns. We make predictions better than the rest of the market and we make outsized returns in that way. So the real impact of all of this, both the Kazadam Prom um, announcement, Cameco's very bullish commentary uh, from there quarterly, and this situation in Niger is will it operate to start the investor flows into the physical uranium funds? And that, Matthew, is a good segue into our moonshots or fizzes for the week. Definitely, definitely. So what is this going to do? For physical uranium funds, we, you know, their expectation was that they'd have a massive impact on the market, and they have. Price continues to drive forward, inventory continues to be mopped up, but they only work in certain trading conditions, right? Um, so, what's what's your view on, say, for instance, Niger uh, on all of, or let's say, Sput, for instance? So far, what it's done is it has increased interest in the ETFs. Uh, and we're seeing flows of funds into the ETS. Now, that benefits the constituent companies in that index. So Bannerman, the company that I'm with, for example, we're in all four of the ETFs. So any money that goes into an ETF, a portion of that finds its way into uh, the bids on the ASX that uh, move our share price. But some of that also goes directly into SPUT um, as a constituent holding within those ETFs. Now, also, we're seeing the gap between the NAV discount that's been prevalent for months now with Sport narrowing. So the Sport Physical Uranium Trust, over the last several weeks, it's averaged about an 11% discount to net asset value. In other words, you can buy Sport at 11% cheaper than the underlying uranium at the current spot price that that represents. That's now close to... Um, day before yesterday, it was 5.5%. We've seen yellow cake close even more to um, around 3%, for example. So it's starting to get to the conditions where it just needs a little bit of an uptick in investor sentiment. And if sport starts trading at a premium, it will issue new units and it will use those new units to buy uranium in the spot market. And the market is so conditioned to understanding what happens next, which is the spot price, it's very tight out there. Spot price will go up. That'll create more investor interest. That'll create more pressure on sports share price, give them the opportunity to issue new units. They buy more uranium and so we go again. So that's the question. That's why it's either a moonshot or it's possible that there's a resolution in Niger or investors lose interest and it just fizzles out and we've got to wait until September for the dynamics that I described to catch on. Um, interestingly, the major consultants in this sector, including UXC, which has traditionally been quite conservative, they're saying quite outwardly these events in Niger will lead to an increase in the uranium price. So... The question now is, to what extent are investors going to front-run that by positioning themselves in the likes of Spot and Yellow Cake and some of the other vehicles, and will that start up this uh, spot price uh, increase ahead of everyone understanding the collective impact of all of these dynamics 
which will probably be in September at the World Nuclear Association Symposium. And I'll see you there. I'll see you there, Brandon. Um, and we've got, we've got to, I mean, that's a point, point well made. You know, you, you sort of recognize the emotion in investing and the emotion in the market in terms of a driver. Um, and even if Niger's situation sorts itself out, there's this nagging doubt will sit in the back of the minds of um, certainly utilities in terms of maybe where they look for their pounds um in, in the future look i'm going to finish off here i quite a fairly humorous one is there's a tweet of the week um we'll put it we'll obviously you know we'll put it up up here but what are we looking at so it's a it's a tweet it's interesting for a couple of reasons so it's by someone i've never come across before um johan christian solid if i've got that pronunciation right apologies if i've mangled it so what johan has put up is and yeah okay great we've got it on the screen now biomass is green energy it's a you know very it's a satirical cartoon and what's interesting about this is johan has a couple of thousand followers and this tweet has gone massively viral it's had more than 1326 retweets um you know thousands of likes and what that tells me is it's really hit a nerve with people. So we were talking before about intermittent renewables and the, the crime of intermittent renewables is not the technology itself. It's the outlandish expectations that lobbyists and other market participants have used to manipulate the collective psyche into expectations that are increasingly apparently just not realistic. That's renewables in a totally different category is a large proportion of bioenergy, which I'm not going to be the only one saying this, but a lot of people say it's an outright fraud to try and treat biomass and not all of it, but many of those categories as a green energy. It's hocus pocus. It's it's uh, it's out. It's dishonest. It, to put it in the kindest possible way, it's dishonest. And that's what this tweet captures. And that's why it's been retweeted so many times because it's capturing an increasing collective conscience. Yeah, I, I, I think I thought it was hilarious. I mean, I hadn't seen it to, um, until, until we discussed it, um, but it, you're, you're right. It, it's, it's as insane as the thing we talked a couple of weeks ago with a similar tweet with and the, the Scottish government having <laughs> cut down whatever it was, 15 million trees to build wind, wind farms what were they thinking and in this case this is a, a sector which we looked at about 10 years ago didn't make sense then it doesn't make sense now um we got to get a grip boys and girls it's not about short-term gain this is about you know providing energy to the people at affordable rates so it doesn't paralyze them uh, and, and affect their lives negatively so if we can get on with that dear politicians that would be much appreciated um Brandon, um, we better wrap it up there. That's been a kind of good, good session. Um, didn't see you last week. You're busy. Um, I also know you put out you put out a note. I, I kind of I saw the note you put out to shareholders. You talk in there about the market has been sort of quiet. It's a very kind of quiet period, as you say. You know, utility prices are on uh, holiday um, or taking a break anyway. Um, the markets are just taking a breather uh, as well. You know, we've seen very, very little effect, I think, on the recent uh, rate increase. Um, uh, I think maybe 
people are thinking we're we're at the bottom, feeling like we're at the bottom now. But your note to your shareholders was saying, look, we need some patience in the market. We've talked about it before. I think other CEOs said, look, just need a bit of patience in the market. And you reframed it as strategically patient. What did you mean by that? Well, it's one thing to be patient, but patient. Uh, needs to have advantages, and here they're very clear because we're on a trajectory of further firming, further tension in the market. All of the signs are that uranium prices are going up. All of the signs are increasing demand. Uh, almost every week we've got another story of supply reductions or supply forward expectations decreasing. So that's all fabulous. It's just not reflected in the current price. So patience has a very clear benefit. However, you need to be very careful that that patience can also have a cost. And for public companies, that cost can be quite profound. For example, companies who are too patient run out of money every day of the week on the stock exchange. So the note to shareholders was really setting out how we've strategically set the company up to be able to have that patience so that we can enter the market at the time that we think is right without any of those costs. And um, as you read, Matt, I just outlined the the three key uh, factors in maintaining strategic patience. The first one is not having any arbitrary deadlines, not promising anyone that you're going to be in production by a certain point. Yes, you can give guidance and it's good to give everyone a flavor for it, um, but we've been careful not to put deadlines and milestones in front of us that we feel compelled to hit. The second one is having the cash. We've got $42.5 million in the bank. Our cash burn's very uh, constrained. Um, and I'll put some numbers in there. Our quarterly cash burn was a couple of million dollars. So that buys us all of the time that we need to choose the timing ourselves, not be forced by our own cash balance. It also gives us the money to progress what we need to with our engineering so that uh, we can keep the project moving forward. Um, even though we've completed our definitive feasibility study. And then the final thing is not so well understood by most investors, but when you've got a very advanced shovel-ready project like Bannerman's Atango project, it's important that you don't let the engineering go stale. It's important that you don't go out and get a whole lot of prices on your uh, construction cost, on your equipment and everything else and then just let those prices sit and go out of date. And so I talked in the note about the really clever things that we've been doing with Wood PLC, our lead engineers, and also Gavin Chamberlain, who's our you know, amazing chief operating officer who you've met. Uh, that there's steps that we've taken to make sure that we're absolutely optimizing that and we're not falling into any traps of letting that engineering go stale or otherwise um, uh, letting those numbers start to become questionable. So we're doing we're doing that really well. And so that gives us that patience. Everything that's within our control, we're controlling well and we're progressing and we're happy with. And the thing that's outside of our control, which is how quickly this market adjusts to the very obvious positive dynamics, well, we'll wait and we'll be patient. And there's no uh, there's no cost to the business of doing that because of the strategic steps that we've taken.